Good morning, church. So good to see you today. I'm Pastor Joy, and I'm continuing this series on the letters to the Thessalonians in our third week. So before I want to read, I read the text today, I want to give you a bit of background. First, some background for me. When I was a little girl, my grandmama, that's what we called her, she would write me letters and send them in the mail. Kind of sounds old-fashioned now, you know. Now, I always recognized her letters, not just by the return address, but by her neat printing when I was younger and then her beautiful cursive when I was older. Grandmama would usually tell me in these letters that she was proud of me, and she would always tell me that she loved me. And I'd get a letter, and I'd open it up, and I'd read the whole thing at once because that's what you do with a letter. You read who it's to, hopefully it's to you. You maybe look at the return address to see who it's from, and then you read the contents. You read the well wishes for your health or for your time at camp. An update on life, a funny story about the farmer's market. Maybe the letter has some questions for you, and you ponder what you might say in response. But whatever it says, you usually read the whole thing. So consider with me what we're going to do today. We're actually going to read a small portion of a letter written to people thousands of years ago and thousands of miles away from us. And we're not going to read the whole letter, just a small segment. But in reading this small portion, it is my hope that you will also spend some time reading the whole thing on your own, maybe even aloud in your household. It will help make the message each week this summer make more sense because that's what you do with a letter. You read the whole thing from top to bottom. Yes, I'll admit, this letter is a bit longer than Grandmama's letters to me, but it is only 12 minutes long if you read it aloud. So it's not that much longer. When this letter was delivered to the church in Thessalonica, they didn't pass it around the circle, taking turns reading it silently. They didn't. And instead, the letter carrier would read the letter aloud to the gathered believers in the congregation, all 12 minutes of it. This was part of the gathering of the believers, the church. Maybe they had already read a portion of the Torah or a psalm or a prophetic writing. Individuals may have stood up and shared about God's work in their life or spoken a word of wisdom to the community. There would be prayer requests, requests for healing, requests for people struggling at work, for discernment in navigating a life of following Jesus in the midst of a culture of idolatry, sexual immorality, and suffering. Because Christ's followers in the first century experienced suffering. They experienced exclusion from their own society as they made choices that honored Jesus rather than the gods of the city. And Thessalonica was a city known for its gods. Archaeological evidence reveals that over 25 gods, heroes, and personifications of virtues were worshipped in Thessalonica. You might have heard of some of them. Dionysus, the Egyptian gods, Osiris and Isis, and of course, the imperial cult of Rome, in which the god Roma 
and past and present human emperors were worshipped as a god and prayed to. Participation in the imperial cult was how everyone showed their patriotic loyalty to Rome. Every single person in the city, with the exclusion of the Jewish people, was expected to take part in imperial cult celebrations, where people would sacrifice animals and pray to Roma. And if you didn't take part in sacrificing and honoring these gods, it was feared that they would retaliate. Sending bad weather, natural disasters, bad trade, sickness, plague. Or that Rome herself would cease treating the citizens of Thessalonica with their favored status. But Christians worshipped the living and true God, and they didn't participate in these festivals. They didn't sacrifice to these gods. They didn't visit these temples. And because of this, their lack of being a team player for the city, they were viewed as being unpatriotic and not caring about civic well-being. Some were even called atheists because their God wasn't even seen, wasn't represented by statues. And so the rest of the community in Thessalonica viewed Christians with suspicion at best and hatred at worst. Some Christians would lose business opportunities. They'd be kicked out of artisan guilds, kind of like unions. They'd lose financial support from their patron. They would become hungrier, less socially and economically secure, and have fewer friends and acquaintances. This is the suffering the church is undergoing. They would lose honor and status in a culture that valued honor and status above everything else. So the church is gathered. The church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe 20 or 30 people. The majority were Greeks, people who had converted from paganism. There may be several wealthy people, like the host, maybe Jason, and there are children and slaves, a few day laborers, maybe an artisan or two, like a potter, people who worked in the commercial port, maybe even a soldier, as well as several Jewish Christians. Many of these people had known Paul during the three weeks he spent with them earlier that year. Some had heard him teach at the synagogue. Others may have had conversations with him as he worked in the leather shop, preparing and sewing leather. We know that while working night and day, Paul would share the gospel of God and people would come to know about the one true and living God in the small room of the leather working shop. Perhaps others had come to join this community after experiencing the kindness of someone sharing food with them or offering them work. And so, when these Christians listened to this letter aloud, all 12 minutes of it, they knew what Paul was addressing because they knew the context of their situation. They knew Paul and the letter was addressed to them. And so in this letter... Paul is going to defend himself from people accusing him of false motives. He's going to encourage the people, and he's going to correct some of their behavior from sex to laziness, and he's going to guide them in their understanding of what will happen to their friends who have already died. And he's going to encourage 
and encourage and encourage them in their suffering. So let's listen today along with our sisters and brothers in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 10. And if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to follow along or in your journal. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this paragraph, Paul is reminding the church of what has happened to them and what's going to happen to them. What's happened to them is that they've become converted. They've turned from following their own way to following God's way, and Paul reminds them of this testimony. And it starts out not by rehashing what their lives were like before Christ, not by emphasizing their current suffering, but by saying what God has done. Because conversion always starts with God, God moves first. Brothers and sisters, beloved by God. God loves you, Paul is saying. This is your identity. Brothers and sisters, beloved by God. Sit with these words a bit. Because to the first century mind, gods didn't love people. A god wasn't love. A god was power and control and selfishness, getting their own way. Gods were a bit moody, we could say. No one else in Thessalonica believed that their god loved them because gods didn't love humans. That's not a smart economic move. That's not the way to get what you want. But not this god. Brothers and sisters beloved by God, God moves first. God loves us. And when God loves us, God chooses us. He has chosen you, Paul writes. Now, in some of your translations, you may see the word elect. <laughs> this word has a lot of baggage. We could take the rest of this message to talk about the baggage that word brings with it, but it means chosen. Remember, this church has some Gentile Christians in it and some Jewish Christians in it. And Hebrew people had been the chosen people from the beginning. 
God had chosen humanity to participate with him in his work in the world. First, Adam and Eve. Then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the children of Israel, the chosen people. But through Christ, this election, this chosenness, is passed on to the church. We're the elect. We're the chosen. And as the church hears this, the Gentile Christians are reminded that now they too are part of the people that God has chosen. Now, when we see the language chosen people, sometimes we think that the main thing about this is that we're saved, chosen and saved. Whoo! Now I don't have to worry about dying anymore. And that's true. But that's not the only point. Paul will address the specific question, actually, about dying later in the chapter. But here he's saying, all you people are chosen by God to participate in God's work. It's not just chosen from, it's chosen for. People hearing this letter are learning that they're chosen by God for something. God loves them and chooses them to participate in his work in the world. And we can know God chooses them because of the third thing that God does in verse 5. Because our message, when he says our, he's saying myself, Paul, and Silas. Our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul and Silas weren't just using beautiful, well-formed sentences to convince the people based on their knowledge of rhetorical structures. Their message wasn't just carried by the words, though it was preached with conviction. The Holy Spirit did the work in the hearts and minds of the Thessalonians to guide them from idols to the living and true God. And this is consistent with the story in Acts 17.4 where we read some of them, some of the Thessalonians, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Not a few of the leading women, a lot of them. And in this sentence in Acts, it has a passive verb. Some of them were persuaded. When there's a passive verb in a narrative like this, we understand that the one doing the action, persuading them, is God. In this case, the Spirit. It doesn't say Paul persuaded them. It says some of them were persuaded by the Holy Spirit, we understand. Because here again, God moves first. God loves, God chooses, and the Holy Spirit persuades. So here... In the story of the Thessalonians' conversion, God is moving first. And then Paul writes about how the Thessalonians responded to God's work. Verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Because this is what happens. God moves first, God works first, and then we respond. And the Thessalonians responded in imitation in following Paul and, more importantly, following Jesus, following Paul, following Jesus. You, Thessalonians, imitated us, Paul says. 
and you imitated Jesus in spite of the persecution you received, which is really imitating Jesus. Here, Paul is referencing the kind of persecution I mentioned earlier, exclusion from the community, economic and vocational struggles, being outcasts because they were not viewed as towing the party line. But the Thessalonians' response caused them, in turn, to become examples, just like Paul and just like Jesus. Because the news about the Thessalonians' habits of of imitation, that they had stopped participating in the pagan rituals and the imperial cult of their own society, this news traveled around and encouraged other churches in the same region. If they can do it, people heard, if they can do it, and there's so much pressure on them and Thessalonica, all those 25 gods, if they can do it, we can do it. And so other congregations in Macedonia and Achaia and, and every place hear about the Thessalonians following Paul, following Jesus. And so they follow the Thessalonians, following Paul, following Jesus all following Jesus together. God moves first. And then people respond. The Thessalonians respond, and this inspires others. Jesus, Paul, Thessalonians, Macedonians, Achaeans, us. I want to point out here that Paul's focus is not simply right belief. First, the people receive the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Again, the power is coming from God. You receive with joy. It changes the heart and attitude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then physical obedience. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Serve is an active verb. Receive with joy, empowered by the Spirit, and then serve God. Because worship is not simply about mental assent or belief. It's about action. God moves first. God loves us, chooses us, and the Holy Spirit's power turns our hearts and fills us with joy. But then it's up to us to respond in action. This is your conversion story, Paul's saying. God moves first, loving and choosing, filling you with joy by the Holy Spirit, And you move second, responding by leaving your idols and turning to the true and living God. And God has used your response as an example for others. It's trumpeting out, this verb says, sounding out, trumpeting out, sounding forth, reverberating and echoing. And that echo continues to be heard here today in Hinsdale or Westmont or wherever you're tuning in from. In verse 8, Paul writes, In every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. We have no need to speak about it, but I am. (laughs) I believe at that time Paul was kind of writing an, an exaggeration, a hyperbole. In every place, really? The whole world? The whole known world, Paul? But there's a certain ironic truth here. Because as the Bible has been translated in languages throughout the world, the fact of the Thessalonians' response does continue to be heard in every place. It is heard everywhere. Today, here in Hinsdale, June 14, 2020, 1040 Central, Central Standard Time, we're hearing the trumpet resonance of the Thessalonians' faith in God 
as demonstrated by their exemplary life, serving the true and living God. Amen. Amen. So as this trumpet sound echoes forth, what does God invite us to do today? What is the response that the Spirit is speaking into our hearts? And maybe as you heard this text read, and as you heard me teach on it, something stuck in your heart and you thought, maybe that's my response. Maybe God's calling me to this. So listen as I speak these options for application for you. Jesus is calling you to respond. So first, I want to remind you, Evangelical Covenant Church of Hinsdale, that God loves you. Brothers and sisters, beloved by God, God loves you. God moves first. This is foundational. Now, those of us who grew up in the church may have grown up with these little trinkets that say things like, God loves you, or Jesus loves me. These are true, totally true. I affirm them 100%. But when it's on a sticker, it loses its gravitas and stickiness, you know? The, The ends start to curl, and you take it off and throw it away, especially if you're about to do laundry because stickers make a big mess. And we forget the foundation of Paul's entire premise that God loves us, and this isn't a sticker to take off and throw away. And God's love for humanity is a theme woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. In Hebrew, the word for God's love, his steadfast, loving-kindness love is chesed. And it occurs 247 times in the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, and it's embodied in the life of Jesus. Friends, I know that some of you today may be struggling to believe or to receive God's love. I've spoken with Christians who have shared this challenge with me, who maybe think that God doesn't love them because they're not good enough, that they haven't obeyed enough, that God doesn't care about them. During communion time in one ministry context, not at this church, I said to a woman, God the Father loves you. And she looked at me with a tear running down her face and a choked up voice, and she said, I hope so. Don't doubt God's love. God loves you. God moves first. If you've struggled to sense God's love or to believe it, I encourage you to pray, Jesus, help me to receive your love. Jesus, help me to receive your love. Read the stories of Jesus' interactions with people in the gospel and imagine that you're there receiving Jesus' love. In the gospel stories, we're able to witness how God's love is made manifest in the actions and teachings of Jesus and meditate on them. Meditate on them with your imagination, imagining you're there. This can change your heart. One book I've found particularly helpful in contemplating God's love is called, it's by Michael Card, uh, Inexpressible, Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. A very long title, but a very accessible book about the love of God as a, a theological theme and truth about God's character through scripture. This has encouraged my heart recently in times of struggle when I wondered if God really loved me. There'll be a link to this book below as well as another by Gary Chapman that some of you might find encouraging to help you experience God's love. So this is the first response I invite you into. 
remember that God loves you. This might be new. This might be something you've forgotten, like a sticker that got old and you took it off and threw it away. Don't forget that God loves you. Remember, in all moments, our true and living God loves us. Men and women and children, God loves you. I'll, I'll share a, a metaphor from my life. Um, I remember when I first met my husband, Justin. Now, first, please know, I do not at all teach that love at first sight is a true thing. It is not. Don't look for it. Um, but I'll confess that I, when I met Justin, I thought it was love at first sight. We had a great friendship and attraction immediately. We would stay up late having really deep conversations about theology. It may not be a surprise to you. And even before Justin told me he loved me, I knew from his action that he did. And I would wake up in the morning knowing that I was beloved of Justin. And that's an identity I've had for 20 years. And it's an identity from which I respond in action and marital faithfulness and acts of service and telling people what a great human being my husband Justin is. I love you, Justin. Thanks for making lunch. Happy Father's Day. But friends, the marriage love is, is a little picture of God's love, but it's a real little picture. Because all of us can experience God's love. God loves you. Brothers and sisters, beloved by God, he has chosen you. And so when you wake up in the morning, rejoice in this. When you get in the car or pick up your phone or eat a meal or when you take a walk or feed the dog or open a window, remember, God loves you. You are beloved by God. God moves first. We love because he first loved us. That's the first thing. This is the second thing. The second response I invite you to consider. This might be a little more challenging in some ways. Sometimes when we read the New Testament, these letters, we think, well, this was over 2,000 years ago or almost 2,000 years ago. People have changed and culture has changed and we're smarter and we know more now and it's not like there are 25 idol temples in Hinsdale. This really isn't applicable to us. That's not true. We are surrounded by idols because idolatry isn't something that is just external. It's not about idols and temples to false gods. Idolatry starts in the heart. The heart wants something. It wants what it wants, and it makes its own idols to worship. The French theologian John Calvin famously wrote, the human heart is a factory of idols. It's harder when these idols aren't explicitly named, when they aren't personified, when we don't make animal sacrifices to them, but we are surrounded by idols, and I would say far more than 25. And we worship them too, or at least sometimes we look their way longingly, thinking that, that maybe that is what our heart wants. Some idols might be sex or money, power or beauty. These are all things that God made. They're good. But, but when worshipped, they become masters over us, and we see images of this mastery all around us. Maybe billboards as you drive to Chicago for work. Maybe on Instagram. 
These idols present themselves to us very attractively on our phones, in the news, through simple slogans we believe, forming our hopes and dreams, forming our identities so that we're no longer first people beloved by God, but we're people who are successful or who have a great family or people who are admired and liked by others. This is all idolatry. Some idols don't even look like idols on the outside because fundamentally they're really good. In his, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I highly recommend to you, Tim Keller names some. He wrote this book about 10 years ago, I think. So some of the other idols he names are doctrinal accuracy, religious communities, political activism, and even traditional family values. And all these things are good, just like a pillar of marble is good but they won't satisfy you long-term. They won't satisfy me long-term. And more than that, they don't love us. You can sacrifice yourself and sacrifice yourself and sacrifice yourself to a false god, but you will only return empty because those gods don't love us. The economy doesn't love us. The internet doesn't love us. Our political party doesn't love us. Any causes, even good causes, they don't love us. Doctrinal accuracy, truthfully, that one spoke to me. It doesn't love me. Only the one true and living God loves us and chooses us. And that's why this all starts with God. God moves first. God has moved, loving you, calling you, choosing you, just like the members of that little church meeting in Jason's house almost 2,000 years ago. God loves us and chooses us and empowers us with joy. And our response to God's love can be a witness, just like the Thessalonians witnessed in Macedonia and Achaia and every place, reverberating out. And so today, friends, in your homes, wherever you are, receive God's love. God has chosen you, and he has sent his spirit to empower you in joy and service. And pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to whatever idols you might be worshiping or even turning your head towards, so that you will return to worship the one true and living God the God who will ever love you with a self-giving love. We're really no different than the Thessalonians fundamentally. When we, chose to, when we choose to follow the Thessalonians, who followed Paul, who followed Jesus, we will experience exclusion and suffering. We will not make sense to our neighbors. We won't participate in certain activities that are considered normal by our world. But we're not alone in this. The Thessalonians are right there with us. We have the model of this church and this letter writer, Paul, and Jesus himself, who demonstrated his great love to us. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's the God we worship. Imitate the Thessalonians, imitate Paul, imitate Jesus, and may the Spirit empower us in such a task. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, pour out on my friends in their homes. Pour out on men and women and children so that they may experience and grow into your love and into your choosing 
So that in our faithfulness, God, the witness of the gospel will sound out reverberating like an echo. We trust you. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.